I would like to develop the idea of cheres, freedom, on a timeless level. Finding meaning in cheres, which is as applicable in 21st century America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, as it was in previous tekufos in Jewish history when we lived under persecution. Because, you know, my friends, cheres freedom has a magic to it. It's one of those words. It just evokes something in us. Something wells in us. Because we're yearning for something. The external conditions of freedom are only a beginning. We are seeking to unlock something deep inside. Kochos hanefesh, spiritual powers, dormant within all of us, longing and yearning to be revealed. So what I would like to do tonight is revisiting the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim to develop a new idea of cheres, a new meaning of freedom on that nishama level. So to begin, freedom is not a one-and-done process, as we said, of granting emancipation. As we see in history, so often people are granted freedom but continue to operate with a slave mentality. Look out, look outside. The struggle for true freedom takes place in an inner struggle of consciousness and state of mind. Freedom is a state of mind, much as slavery is a state of mind. A splendid source for this idea can be found in the unique label which Chazal the sages attached to our period of slavery in Mitzrayim. The Zohar HaKadosh calls Mitzrayim Golos Hadas, an exile of knowledge, namely our faculty of understanding was under siege. This teaching of Chazal does not develop in a vacuum. Elsewhere, Chazal depict the generation that left Mitzrayim as Dardeya, a generation of knowledge, as Rashi and Sefer Malachim explains. Something interesting is going on here. We can't help but notice that the same element appears in these two self-contained teachings about Gullus and Geula, respectively. Gullus Hadas, exile of knowledge on one hand, and Dardaya, the redeemed people are a generation of knowledge on the other hand. Fascinating. How can we harmonize these two disparate elements into a pattern of wholeness? When we think about it carefully, they actually complement each other perfectly. The exile of Das and the recovery of Das is the pendulum on which the Exodus story, the Etzias Mitzrayim story, swings. Yet what we have traced here from these two statements of Chazal is only the beginning. Listen with a sensitive ear as the word Das leaps from the pages of the Etzias Mitzrayim story. It appears most obviously in reference to the knowledge of Hashem, Yedias Hashem, which becomes revealed successively through the Nisa and the miracles. Dozens of times in the Chumash, we find, the ex- we find expressions like, Bezos Hashem, through this plague you will know that I am Hashem. Or, Hashem And you will know that I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of Mitzrayim. But we also find the term Das appearing in a more surprising usage. For example, the Torah repeatedly calls Hashem's sensitivity, mercy towards the oppressed B'nai Yisrael, 
as an attribute of knowledge. For example, Vayar Elokim as Bnei Yisrael, Vayeta Elokim, Hashem saw Bnei Yisrael and Hashem knew, or Yadati as Machovav, I know their pain. Das in the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim seems to be a reciprocal relationship, both between man and Hashem, and between Hashem and man. With all of this in mind, read carefully the words of the Brisbane Habsar, which introduced the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim saga. Avram Avinu asks, Bama Eida, how will I know? And Hashem responds, Yadoat Eida, indeed you will know. Avram is yearning to know, and Hashem is guaranteeing that his angst will be resolved. In light of everything we've brought out until now, this phrase knowing holds a certain magic. Here, we see the quest to know at the very onset of our story, and thus the die of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is cast. Beyond the pshat, literal meaning of this exchange, we sense that a deeper theme is unfurled here. The Exodus story is all about restoring the coveted faculty of knowledge. One more source that points to this theme of Das can be found in the term Enoi, deprivation. The Torah repeatedly calls our servitude in Mitzrayim Enoi deprivation, which is from the word Ani, poverty. We have the Lachamoni, the poor man's bread at the Seder, commemorating our experience. We have terminologies in the Chumas such as Lemana Noso, in order to make them poor, to deprive them. Vayanu B'nai Yisrael, Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim deprived B'nai Yisrael, Vayanunu, Vavaratam V'inuosam, the term poverty, describing our circumstances as deprivation, permeates the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim text pervasively. Why is that phrase poverty so important? Because Chazal famously declared in the Gemara Nidarm, hear this, Ein Ani Elabidas, True poverty is the poverty of knowledge. True poverty is not a question of assets. Yes, that's a consequence. But at its root, says the Chazal, Enoi, poverty, is a state of mind. It would follow from this maxim that the term Enoi, poverty, so highlighted in the slavery passage, describes not merely the Jewish people's impoverishment of assets, but on a deeper, more troubling level, it conveys the impoverishment of their knowledge and faculty of understanding. This capacity to understand and to know is indeed the most intimate of personal possessions. The most precious thing we each possess is, of course, our mind, our consciousness. And we immediately begin to think about Victor Frankl and other great thinkers who spoke of times when they were deprived of all sorts of material possessions. But yet... They were not deprived of their das. So in the deepest recesses of their existence, they were not poor. Ain ani ella bidas. What a brilliant read of that term inoi, poverty pervasively permeated the Exodus passage. The loss of das is the greatest surrender and the greatest tragedy the free person suffers in slavery. Pulling all of these clues together, a magnificent tapestry of the Das theme rolls out right in front of us in the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The tapestry is rewardingly beautiful. Nevertheless, it leaves us wanting more. 
The question behind it all is, what is really meant by this knowledge? What are we talking about here? What is this capacity of human understanding that was besieged in Gaulus Mitzrayim, Gaulus Hadas? We can unlock the answer to this question when we understand Pyro's strategy of enslavement better. If we can enter Pyro's demonic head for a moment, we will see how it was maliciously designed to subjugate not only the body, but the mind as well. Pyro's stunting of the mind is brought to light in the dramatic episode at the end of Parsha Shmos, when Moshe first appears on the scene and demands that Paro let my people go. Sensing the potent hope for freedom could not be held in check after Moshe's demand. Freedom has a magic to it. Paro responds immediately, quashes this hope by accusing the slaves of laziness and intensifying their workload. They are lazy, and that's why they're crying, let us leave. So therefore, increase the labor quota on the men. That will quelch, squelch their desire for freedom. Paro understood that the possibility to dream, to yearn for a better future, hinges on a mind that is active, dreaming, imaginative, a spirit that is engaged. In an effort to squelch this desire, Pyro inundated them with work and harsh demands to such a degree that they cannot think anymore, much less hatch a great scheme of revolt. In the words of Ramchal in the Darah Hashem, listen to the Ramchal's words. The Ramchal was a master craftsman, word craftsman of the Hebrew language. He's called the father of modern Hebrew by some. Listen to the words of Ramchal and Messias Yasham regarding this episode of Paro. Paro's goal was to eliminate free mental space on the part of B'nai Yisrael so that his slaves would not take heart. Process, take heart or stage a rebellion. This language of Ramchal is powerful and classic of his style and golden pen. We can trace an unmistakable source for this notion of confining the heart in the words of a medrash cited by Rashi and Parshas Vayechi regarding Mitzrayim. Nistamu eneyem velibun shal Yisrael mitzarash The eyes and the heart of the Jewish people became closed due to the torment of slavery. This means that their perception of reality as an eyes and their internalization thereof, that is what Rashi means when he says heart, was choked by conscious numbing slavery. B'nai Yisrael worked robotically throughout, not challenging the status quo or dreaming of a better future. Surprisingly, when we look at the early stages of slavery, we find that not only do they work robotically without challenging the status quo, they didn't even react with a cracks, with an expression of pain, or seem to feel their own suffering. It was as though their faculty of emotion was anesthetized and impotent and impotent. This becomes clear when we study the swing of the pendulum in the story, when they finally do react. In 
It was in those days the king of Egypt died and B'nai Yisrael sighed from their work and cried out. What does it mean that the king of Egypt died? And why did it provoke their outcry? On a level of Pshat, Ramban explains that the people had hoped that upon Pharaoh's demise, a more benevolent successor would emerge when this hope did not materialize and the next Pyro proved to be just as cruel. They cried over their dashed dreams. In an alternative explanation, on a level of drash, Chazal explained, as cited by Rashi, that Pyro didn't actually die. Rather, he was afflicted with a skin ailment, saras, which is equated with death, mitzorah of kemes. To cure this disease, Pyro utilized a most sadistic therapy, bathing in the blood of Jewish babies. In response to this atrocity, the people cried out. Notice how according to either explanation, it took a dramatic provocation. Either the dashed dreams of a better Pyro, or the use of baby's blood for bathing to stimulate the people to cry out. How astonishing that until this point, the Torah reports... No venting of emotion on B'nai Yisrael's part, despite the horror of slavery. Indeed, Pyro's conscious numbing program was so successful that the people just accepted the torment that was visited upon them. Hello, what's going on here? How could it be that the Jewish people mindlessly endured the outrage perpetrated on them without giving any indication that they were hurting? They had been reduced to a robotic workforce. Robots have no emotion. I must say as an aside, as we increasingly live in a robotic era, robots doing everything, I miss people and throbbing hearts. Robots have no emotions. They did not feel, Benesiel did not feel pain. They did not emote feelings. How magnificently we can now appreciate the depiction of the Gullus in Mitzrayim as Gullus Hadas. The people had lost all ability to take stock of their labor conditions and to respond to atrocity with a healthy reaction. It's a healthy reaction, crying out of pain. Where was their ouch? An ouch is precious. My friends, I must tell you, a cruel, a Almost cruel thought sometimes passes my mind when you see lifeless people. People who are just lifeless. And I think to myself, would there be an ouch if you would prick them right now with a needle? That is the worst, the most deadly, the most, the saddest place for a human being to be is to be just checked out from life itself, checked out from feeling the pain of their own conditions. That is Gullus Hadas. It's all on autopilot here. It's all anesthetized and dead. Gullus hadas indeed. That is the deepest abyss of Avdus and Mitzrayim, a place we never want to be at. But now the first spark of mindfulness. Geula, let's trace it. The pendulum shift occurred upon Pyro's death. Whatever is meant by this demise... Was it the dashed dreams of a better successor which did not materialize? Was it Pyro's sadistically bathing in the blood of babies? Whatever it was, it took something shocking, so shocking to the status quo that it jolted B'nai Israel from their stupor. 
Suddenly there was an opening. It released the stronghold on their spirit. The healthy human response escaped and they cried out in pain. This moment is therefore magical. The first spark of mindfulness. The counterforce to Gullus Hadas. When we consider Hashem's immediate response to their cry, this cry, Hashem immediately responds and advances the redemption, reveals himself to Moshe. We see how precious this perspective is. In the Pasuk immediately following their cry, the Torah records how Hashem heard them, became sensitive to their pain, and sent Moshe to redeem them. Conventionally, we understand Hashem's response as simply one of mercy to the cry of the oppressed. But we see now there is so much more to it than that. Hashem's intervention was a recognition, a validation on that they were worthy to be redeemed from Galas Hadas. Their cry was their active first step becoming the liberated people who, as we studied, are called Dardea, the generation of knowledge. This is a people who are beginning a process of liberation, internal liberation. Thinking about this emotional encounter between man and God is intriguing. Can we take this explanation of grandiose drama beyond the realm of sentiment and musing? As with every Torah thought revelation, we have a healthy angst and a deep urge to find corroboration in the source in the Chumash. Can we ground this thought with some powerful clue in the text that Hashem's response to their cry of emotion is a validation? Mindfulness is where it's at, is where Cheris is at. Listen with our sensitive ear to the language with which the Torah describes Hashem's attentive response to their cry. Vayeda Elokim. Hashem knew. Isn't that an enigmatic way to describe divine sensitivity? But now we appreciate the deeper mystery behind this expression. Hashem was validating their first spark of Das with Das of his own. And this reciprocal exchange of das between him and them continued to develop in the course of the unfolding geula. This first step of mindfulness was admittedly only a baby step, prompted by a visceral shockwave of pain. Read carefully the words that describe B'nai Yisrael's entreaty here. Vayanchu B'nai Yisrael minavoda vayazaku. They sighed from work and they cried. Notice that it does not say they cried to Hashem in conscious prayer. Simply they cracked, they sighed, and they cried. No davening. In fact, this becomes clear from a later passage in the Yamsuf story. In the Yamsuf passage, with the Egyptians at their back and their face to the sea, the Torah then describes, by Yitzhaku B'nai Yisrael El Hashem, they cried out to Hashem. In that episode, Rashi, citing Chazal, first observes an attribute of prayer, saying, Tafsu Yamsuf took hold of their ancestors' trade, the trade of prayer. It is only at Yamsuf, after they had experienced the divine revelation of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, that B'nai Yisrael attained a true awareness of Hashem and directed their entreaties to him. In Mitzrayim, however, they simply cried out themselves. But Hashem heard their cry and recognized its power as a first spark of mindfulness. Knowledge. 
On some deeper subconscious level, this cry can be seen as a form of prayer. The, even though they are not consciously praying, formally praying, they're simply crexing. Because the ability to crex, to cry, presupposes an assumption that things ought to be better. Otherwise, one doesn't cry. There must be an ultimate reality of goodness. There must be a supreme force of love and kindness to which one can appeal. This redemptive suggestion of subliminal prayer can be picked up splendidly from later narratives in Torah which describe this story in Mitzrayim. For example, the Arami Ovid Avi passage, which the Haggadah correlates Tarshamo's narrative, says, Vayetzaku el Hashem elokeavuseinu. We cried out to Hashem, the God of our forefathers. And likewise, a Pasuk in Sefer Bamidbar, Parachaf, Pasuk Tezayin says, Vanitzak el Hashem, we cried out to Hashem. Notice how unlike the Samos narrative, which speaks in real time, these later passages, from the benefit of hindsight, point to the virtue of prayer. In the end, B'nai Yisrael came to see that an awareness of Hashem, which is true das, had actually been present in their heart of hearts. We are sometimes davening without realizing it, in a sense. Somehow pining for a better condition, for hope, for love, everything which is ultimately Hashem. We might, just, we might simply not yet be in a position to theologically conceptualize it as tefillah. When the full trajectory of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim was complete, B'nai Yisrael was able to fully reclaim its spirit and take ownership of the powerful redemption of Das. So this, my friends, is the first revelation which I would like to present tonight. Pervasively permeating the text and now brought to light, Cheirus is all about Das. It's all a state of mind. When we just go through the motions on autopilot and don't reassess our lives, am I on the highway I want to be on? Am I on the pathway towards pursuing my destiny, my purpose, my neshama's longings, my connection to Hashem? And I'm underlining the word my. If I'm just going through the motions... The me is a prisoner. And this is an equally relevant struggle in 21st century America, the, home, the, the land of the free and the home of the brave. You see it in the sheer usage of the term mindfulness. When I was a child, I did not hear that expression, mindfulness. It's only in my adulthood that I've heard that expression used. It, it, it's a buzz phrase. And whenever there's a buzz phrase, you know that it's indicating something which the people are grappling with, something which the entire culture is grappling with. In the fast-paced hubbub of life, hubbub of life, people are struggling to be on top of their situation. They feel enslaved by their conditions, be they painful conditions, as B'nai Yisrael and Mitzrayim, or be they simply the stress of life. They feel subjects to circumstance, and they're trying to reclaim themselves, reassert themselves over circumstance. That is what mindfulness is about. 
Well, here we have in the story of Cheres of old, Yitzias Mitzrayim, this oh-so-contemporary theme, so affirmed. We too want to become a Dardea, a Dar of knowledge, which sometimes means crying and saying ouch. As we studied, that is the redemptive first step of Das. Sometimes it is that release of tears, that crying, which shakes one up from their stupor. That really hurts. This is not really where I want to be at. And now, hopefully, I can avail a pathway forward. In some cases, seek the help I need to pursue a better path forward. Geulas Hadas is idea number one, contemporary, timeless idea number one of Cheres, which I would like to propose this evening. And now I would like to move on to a related idea of timeless Cheres, the timelessness of Cheres. And that's what I'm going to call the freedom of self-expression. Freedom will require unlocking that inner self and unshackling it from its mechanical existence into which it had fallen. That's Das, which we have studied till now. But there's a deeper frontier. There's a further frontier. There's a... Another step in advancing freedom of the spirit. Beyond self-awareness, mindfulness, we crave self-expression, the possibility to communicate our inner selves with the world. Even if I have mindfulness, in some sense I'm stunted so long as I'm on an island onto myself. I think of the song, the poem, and loneliness is worst of all. There is nothing more lonely than when my thoughts are kind of locked inside. The ability to project our viewpoint, to express our feelings, and pain is critical. Haven't we all experienced the angst when we feel suppressed because we are not allowed to express ourselves freely? or because we fear that our sentiments will not be respected or appreciated. There's, there's kind of a passive-aggressive form of bulliness that some, some, some environments are just brimming with this, no one's going to take what you say seriously. No one's going to try to relate to you. So effectively, you become stunted from self-expression, even if you have DAS, even if you have step one, even if you have self-awareness. How exciting now will be to discover that this powerful concept of self-expression is woven into the fabric of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim and its all-encompassing vision of Cheris, let's dig in. A first clue lies in a statement of Chazal, this is a statement in the Zohar, which is often looked at as enigmatic and mysterious. It says, Dibor Bigalusa, Speech was an exile in Mitzrayim. This is not some nebulous musing. We are able to understand this statement as conveying a powerful truth. 
Our story as the model of freedom struggle has to feature the suppression of speech and the ability to share our thoughts and thus be redeemed. This theme comes to life in a Pasuk which the above cited Zohar cites. It points to the Pasuk which describes Moshe's reticence to be the agent of redemption because of his deficient tongue. Lowish devarim anochi. I am not a man of words. And the Zohar says that's the source of this notion of the exile of, of speech. This interpretation of the Pasuk might seem like a leap. Moshe's oral handicap somehow conveys the grandiose theme that speech in general is an exile until we appreciate the deeper meaning and beauty which, take, which will take shape from the Zohar. Apparently the Zohar understands that Moshe's verbal handicap is far more than a happenstance fact in the story. Rather, it's brimming with symbolism regarding not only his personal struggle, but the struggle of all of B'nai Yisrael, who he represents. Think for a moment of a fertile, prodigious Ga'onisha mind of Moshe and feel the profound frustration as he stammers to express himself and bring his thoughts forth to the world. Think about people filled with content you know who have a stutter or something to that effect. How painful. He is the colossal embodiment of the collective condition of the Jewish people. They too have a rich inner world yearning to be expressed, but the conditions of suppression and slavery have stunted their ability to communicate, to let it out. Moshe's ultimate ability to somehow communicate and overcome his handicap mirrors their own triumph in experiencing personal redemption. That's what the Zohar means here. With this perspective fresh in our mind, we can spring forth and find clues to the promise of speech popping up all over the celebration of Yitzhak Mitzrayim on Pesach. To start, we all know that the primary mitzvah at the Seder is to discuss and retell the story. This mitzvah, Sipri Yitzhak Mitzrayim, not only mandates speech, it glorifies speech by encouraging verbosity. He who elaborates in his storytelling is praised. In this vein, the centerpiece of Matzah at the Seder is called Lechem Sha'onan Alav Dvarim Harbe, the bread upon which we recite many words. The mitzvah is called Sipri Yitzhak Mitzrayim and performs on the first night of Pesach, and then followed by a sister mitzvah on the second night of Pesach, Sefiras Haomer. This mitzvah of counting the Omer not only continues to utilize the faculty of speech, it shares the same etymological root as the mitzvah on the first night. Sipur and Svirah are both derived from the root word Saper. These two mitzvahs juxtapose night to night, point to the greater theme of speech at the core of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This focus on speech woven into the very fabric of Pesach, celebrates the most cherished cheres, the freedom to express ourselves. We might be skeptical of this pattern. Are we making too much of the symbolism of these annual oral mitzvahs? How validating then to turn to a well-known Kabbalistic teaching, 
which divides the phrase, the word, the title Pesach into two phrases. The pay means peh, mouth, followed by the samachas sach, pesach, the mouth speaks. This mnemonic, which might sound stretchy and trite, actually conveys the essence of the Yantif and its mitzvahs. Indeed, the mouth speaks on this holiday, celebrating the redemption of Deber Begalusa, speech from its exile. The Jewish soul, now freed, shares its innermost most thoughts and feelings with the world. The theme of self-expression is firmly grounded in the powerful pendulum shift in the story, when B'nai Yisrael finally cried out in connection with Paro's death. As we have studied, that was this, a watershed moment. Until now, B'nai Yisrael had suffered in silence, unable to give voice to their feelings. Their capacity for self-expression was marred. And this constitutes the apogee of Deber Begalusa's speech in exile. But in the pivotal moment when they finally cried out, they experienced the powerful sensation of release. Everything they had pent up inside through all the years, all the callous experiences which had been buried in silence, exploded in a tremendous collective voice. They were able to, in the vernacular, let it all out. And this outpouring from the depth of their neshama was not only cathartic, I'm suggesting it was profoundly liberating. Cheros, their inner world, was no longer enslaved. Now we can embrace this scene with even greater feeling and see how it served as the immediate catalyst for divine redemption. It was the, this power of release, this bearing of the soul, this liberation from within, which heralded the co- corresponding liberation from without. Yitzias Mitzrayim. So this is our second great revelation of the evening, the freedom to express ourselves. The conversation at the Seder is really modeling what it means to converse. Hopefully we are celebrating a Seder with open, tolerant people who, who have the motivation, who have the willingness to step out of themselves and try to hear us and hear our, the way we think our inner world, because that will liberate us. And that models conversation, the ability for people to express themselves. You know, conversation is demanding. Relationship is demanding. You you need to have the willingness to try to open your own self up as a listener to where another person is coming from. But when we do that, we are enriched by the power of exchange and the reciprocal liberation. Each person can unburden themselves, express themselves, make their own inner world ever larger, broader, share their very selves. So here we have two faculties necessary for redemption, which we developed tonight. Das, knowledge, and deeper speech, side by side in the liberation of B'nai Yisrael. B'nai Yisrael developed, I'm suggesting, both self-awareness, das, and self-expression, Debor namely consciousness of their inner world and likewise the ability to share that inner world with others. Honing these two related qualities was the key to liberation of their spirit and their very humanity. 
How exciting to discover that this connection is not our own loose sentiment or musing. Indeed, it is brilliantly embedded in the teaching of Chazal. Commenting on the Pasuk embraces regarding the creation of Adam. Man became a living being. Chazal say, Man is called more alive than the animals because he has Deya Vidibor, knowledge and speech. Notice how these very two attributes define man's essence in contrast to the animals. Deya Vidibor, that we do not only move through life, we experience life engaged in, internally through understanding and externally through sharing that understanding with the world at large. As building blocks of who we are, both of these faculties are indispensable for us to thrive. Thus, in its restoration of these faculties, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is the restoration of our very humanity. Knowledge and speech are precious gifts from Hashem and to allow us to develop fully as human beings. With them, our lives take on substance and meaning. But here's the other side of the coin. But like all gifts granted to man, they can be easily cheapened or wasted. What a pity that so many people occupy themselves with petty, even harmful thoughts that they share with others. They are squandering the promise of freedom, the ability to grow, develop, and advance human destiny. How thrilling for us to discover a clue that affirms this tragic misuse of our potential within the grand drama of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Hear this. Kabbalah breaks the name Paro, pays Reishai and Hay into two words. The pay is path, the mouth, and the Reishai and Hay spells raw, bad. Rub, bad mouth. It's not a school teacher talking about a kid's bad mouth. This is the Kabbalistic interpretation of the etymology of the name Paro, Para, bad mouth. This mnemonic, so unmistakably similar to the one cited above, of Pesach, Pesach, talking mouth, reveals an additional layer to the pattern of speech we can trace at Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Think of Paro barking decrees and using his power of speech to demonize and plot against the Jews. And when we look carefully, we can find an even more insidious insidious example of Paro's bad mouth. An example which adds the final brushstroke to the great panorama of the influence of speech taking shape. See how the term describes describing the slave labor in Parsha Shemos, Perach, body-breaking, is similarly broken by the Gemara into two words. Pe-Resh Chaf is spelled, is interpreted as Pe-Pe, mouth, Rach, soft, soft mouth. Paro lured his subjects into servitude with a soft mouth, meaning a welcoming tone of civic duty. This is what you need to do as a good Egyptian citizen. And before they knew it, they were bound and abused, says the Gemara. This Gemara stands out on its own. Yet how much more intriguing it is 
when we recognize how it unmistakably echoes the reread of Paro's name as Pa-ra, a bad mouth. You see the pattern? It is in this final damning testimony, we find the most sinister abuse of speech, using words to pull wool over people's eyes and ensnare them. Speech, and by extension, all the opportunities that freedom provides, can be so horribly abused, even beyond his bad mouth. Broadly speaking, think of Paro, how Paro misused all the powers of his sovereignty to exploit the oppressed under his command. He is certainly not the model to which we aspire, but he can serve brilliantly as a bad example. So that is a word of caution, woven a... An angle woven into the grand tapestry of Dibor and Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Das and Dibor, the mind and the mouth, are precious gifts which can be misused as well. But used correctly, they affirm our very humanity. I am not an object. I am not a robot. I am a living, engaged person who thinks, internalizes, develops what's going on around me. And ultimately, I seek to share those thoughts to the world, with the world. This is a more sophisticated understanding of Cheiros. And why the high aspiration of Cheiros continues to elude so many people, despite prosperity and all the external circumstances, the ability to be a fully engaged person, to be mindful, and to be expressive, to be able to share self, defines our humanity, and it is through these faculties, becoming engaged people, that ultimately we become davik to Hashem. We aspire to the divine. We become our own independent realities, free realities, who think develop ourselves, and then express ourselves, much as we kiviyachal envision Hashem himself, fully engaged, kiviyachal thinking, developing, sharing himself, communicating as he does through the creation of the world. May we be zocha, may we merit to the, these higher ideals of cheras, to these freedoms from within, which are so connected to the freedom from without. Yitzias Mitzrayim, thank you very much. Any questions?